The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1 The Mind or Consciousness. We are to study the mind and its education. But how? It is easy to understand how we may investigate the great world of material things about us, for we can see it, touch it, weigh it, or measure it. But how are we to discover the nature of the mind, or come to know the processes by which consciousness works? For mind is intangible. We cannot see it, feel it, taste it, or handle it. Mind belongs not to the realm of matter, which is known to the senses, but to the realm of spirit, which the senses can never grasp. And yet the mind can be known and studied as truly and as scientifically as can the world of matter. Let us first of all see how this can be done. How mind is to be known. The personal character of consciousness. Mind can be observed and known, but each one can know directly only his own mind and not another's. You and I may look into each other's face and there guess the meaning that lies back of the smile or frown or flash of the eye and so read something of the mind's activity, but neither directly meets the other's mind. I may learn to recognize your features know your voice, respond to the clasp of your hand, but the mind, the consciousness which does your thinking and feels your joys and sorrows, I can never know completely. Indeed, I can never know your mind at all except through your bodily acts and expressions. Nor is there any way in which you can reveal your mind, your spiritual self, to me except through these means. It follows, therefore, that only you can ever know you, and only I can ever know I, in any first-hand and immediate way. Between your consciousness and mine, there exists a wide gap that cannot be bridged. Each of us lives apart. We are like ships that pass and hail each other in passing but do not touch. We may work together, live together, come to love or hate each other, and yet our inmost selves forever stand alone. They must live their own lives, think their own thoughts, and arrive at their own destiny. Introspection, the only means of discovering nature of consciousness. What, then, is mind? What is the thing that we call consciousness? No mere definition can ever make it clearer than it is at this moment to each of us. The only way to know what mind is, is to look in upon our own consciousness and observe what is transpiring there. In the language of the psychologist, we must introspect for one can never come to understand the nature of mind 
and its laws of working by listening to lectures or reading textbooks alone. There is no psychology in the text, but only in your living, flowing stream of thought and mind. True, the lecture and the book may tell us what to look for when we introspect and how to understand what we find. But the statements and descriptions about our minds must be verified by our own observation and experience before they become vital truth to us. How we introspect. Introspection is something of an art. It has to be learned. Some master it easily, some with more difficulty, and some, it is to be feared, never become skilled in its use. In order to introspect, one must catch himself unawares, so to speak, in the very act of thinking, remembering, deciding, loving, hating, and all the rest. These fleeting phases of consciousness are ever on the wing. They never pause in their restless flight, and we must catch them as they go. This is not so easy as it appears. For the moment we turn to look in upon the mind, that moment consciousness changes. The thing we meant to examine is gone, and something else has taken its place. All that is left us, then, is to view the mental object while it is still fresh in the memory, or to catch it again when it returns. Studying Mental States of Others Through Expression Although I can meet only my own mind face to face, I am, nevertheless, under the necessity of judging your mental states and knowing what is taking place in your consciousness. For in order to work successfully with you, in order to teach you, understand you, control you, or obey you, be your friend or enemy, or associate with you in any other way, I must know you. But the real you that I must know is hidden behind the physical mask that we call the body. I must, therefore, be able to understand your states of consciousness as they are reflected in your bodily expressions. Your face, form, gesture, speech, the tone of voice, laughter and tears, the poise of attention, the droop of grief, the tenseness of anger, and start of fear, all these tell the story of the mental state that lies behind the senses. These various expressions are the pictures on the screen by which your mind reveals itself to others. They are the language by which the inner self speaks to the world without. Learning to interpret expression. If I would understand the workings of your mind, I must therefore learn to read the language of physical expression. I must study human nature and learn to observe others. I must apply the information found in the texts to an interpretation of those about me. This study of others may be uncritical, as in the mere intelligent observation of those I meet, or it may be scientific, 
as when I conduct carefully planned psychological experiments. But in either case, it consists in judging the inner states of consciousness by their physical manifestations. The three methods by which mind may be studied are, then, one, textbook, description, and explanation. Two, introspection of my own conscious processes. And three, observation of others, either uncritical or scientific. The nature of consciousness, inner nature of the mind not revealed by introspection. We are not to be too greatly discouraged if, even by introspection, we cannot discover exactly what the mind is. No one knows what electricity is, though nearly everyone uses it in one form or another. We study the dynamo, the motor, and the conductors through which electricity manifests itself. We observe its effects in light, heat, and mechanical power, and so learn the laws which govern its operations. But we are almost as far from understanding its true nature as were the ancients who knew nothing of its uses. The dynamo does not create the electricity, but only furnishes the conditions which make it possible for electricity to manifest itself in doing the world's work. Likewise, the brain or nervous system does not create the mind, but it furnishes the machine through which the mind works. We may study the nervous system and learn something of the conditions and limitations under which the mind operates. But this is not studying the mind itself. As in the case of electricity, what we know about the mind, we must learn through the activities in which it manifests itself. These we can know, for they are in the experience of all. It is then, only by studying these processes of consciousness, that we come to know the laws which govern the mind and its development. What it is that thinks and feels and wills in us is too hard a problem for us here. Indeed, has been too hard a problem for the philosophers through the ages. But the thinking and feeling and willing we can watch as they occur and hence come to know. Consciousness as a process or stream. In looking in upon the mind, we must expect to discover then, not a thing, but a process. The thing forever eludes us, but the process is always present. Consciousness is like a stream, which, so far as we are concerned with it in a psychological discussion, has its rise at the cradle and its end at the grave. It begins with the babe's first faint gropings after light in his new world as he enters it, and ends with the man's last blind gropings 
after light in his old world as he leaves it. The stream is very narrow at first, only as wide as the few sensations which come to the babe when it sees the light or hears the sound. It grows wider as the mind develops and is at last measured by the grand sum total of life's experience. This mental stream is irresistible. No power outside of us can stop it while life lasts. We cannot stop it ourselves. When we try to stop thinking, the stream but changes its direction and flows on. While we wake and while we sleep, while we are unconscious, under anesthetic even, some sort of mental process continues. Sometimes the stream flows slowly and our thoughts lag. We feel slow. Again, the stream flows faster and we are lively and our thoughts come with a rush or a fever seizes us and delirium comes on. Then the stream runs wildly onward, defying our control and a mad jargon of thoughts takes the place of our usual orderly array. In different persons also, the mental stream moves at different rates, some minds being naturally slow-moving and some naturally quick in their operations. Consciousness resembles a stream also in other particulars. A stream is an unbroken hole from its source to its mouth, and an observer stationed at one point cannot see all of it at once. He sees but the one little section which happens to be passing his station point at the time. The current may look much the same from moment to moment, but the component particles which constitute the stream are constantly changing. So it is with our thought. Its stream is continuous from birth till death but we cannot see any considerable portion of it at one time. When we turn about quickly and look in upon our minds, we see but the little present moment. That of a few seconds ago is gone and will never return. The thought which occupied us a moment since can no more be recalled just as it was then can the particles composing a stream be recollected and made to pass a given point in its course in precisely the same order and relation to one another as before. This means, then, that we can never have precisely the same mental state twice, that the thought of the moment cannot have the same associates that it had the first time that the thought of this moment will never be ours again, that all we can know of our minds at any one time is the part of the process present in consciousness at that moment. The wave in the stream of consciousness. The surface of our mental stream is not level, but it is broken by a wave which stands above the rest which is but another way of saying that some one thing is always more prominent in our thought than the rest. 
only when we are in a sleepy reverie or not thinking about much of anything does the stream approximate a level. At all other times, some one object occupies the highest point in our thought. To the more or less complete exclusion of other things which we might think about. A thousand and one objects are possible to our thought at any moment, but all except one thing occupy a secondary place or are not present to our consciousness at all. They exist on the margin or else are clear off the edge of consciousness while the one thing occupies the center. We may be reading a fascinating book late at night in a cold room. The charm of the writer, the beauty of the heroine, or the bravery of the hero so occupies the mind that the weary eyes and chattering teeth are unnoticed. Consciousness has piled up in a high wave on the points of interest in the book, and the bodily sensations are for the moment on a much lower level. But let the book grow dull for a moment, and the makeup of the stream changes in a flash. Hero, heroine, or literary style no longer occupies the wave. They forfeit their place. The wave is taken by the bodily sensations, and we are conscious of the smarting eyes and shivering body, while these in turn give way to the next object which occupies the wave. Consciousness likened to a field. The consciousness of any moment has been less happily likened to a field, in the center of which there is an elevation higher than the surrounding level. This center is where consciousness is piled up on the object which is for the moment foremost in our thought. The other objects of our consciousness are on the margin of the field for the time being, but any of them may the next moment claim the center and drive the former object to the margin. Or it may drop entirely out of consciousness. This moment a noble resolve may occupy the center of the field while a troublesome tooth begets sensations of discomfort which linger dimly on the outskirts of our consciousness. But a shooting pain from the tooth or a random thought crossing the mind and, lo, the tooth holds sway, and the resolve dimly fades to the margin of our consciousness and is gone. The piling up of consciousness is attention. This figure is not so true as the one which likens our mind to a stream with its ever onward current answering to the flow of our thought. But whichever figure we employ, the truth remains the same. Our mental energy is always piled up higher at one point than at others, either because our interest leads us or because the will dictates the mind is withdrawn from the thousand and one things we might think about and directed to this one thing, which for the time occupies chief place. In other words, we attend, for this piling up of consciousness is nothing, after all, but attention. Content of the Mental Stream 
we have seen that our mental life may be likened to a stream flowing now faster, now slower, ever shifting, never ceasing. We have yet to inquire what constitutes the material of the stream or what is the stuff that makes up the current of our thought? What is the content of consciousness? The question cannot be fully answered at this point, but a general notion can be gained which will be of service. Why we need minds. Let us first of all ask what mind is for. Why do animals, including men, have minds? The biologist would say, in order that they may adapt themselves to their environment. Each individual from mollusk to man needs the amount and type of mind that serves to fit its possessor into its particular world of activity. Too little mind leaves the animal helpless in the struggle for existence. On the other hand, a mind far above its possessor's station would prove useless if not a handicap. A mollusk could not use the mind of a man. Content of consciousness determined by function. How much mind does man need? What range and type of consciousness will best serve to adjust us to our world of opportunity and responsibility? First of all, we must know our world. Hence, our mind must be capable of gathering knowledge. Second, we must be able to feel its values and respond to the great motives for action arising from the emotions. Third, we must have the power to exert self-compulsion, which is to say that we possess a will to control our acts. These three sets of processes, knowing, feeling, and willing, we shall, therefore, expect to find making up the content of our mental stream. Let us proceed at once to test our conclusion by introspection. If we are sitting at our study table puzzling over a difficult problem in geometry, reasoning forms the wave in the stream of consciousness, the center of the field. It is the chief thing in our thinking. The fringe of our consciousness is made up of various sensations of light from the lamp, the contact of our clothing, the sounds going on in the next room, some bit of memory seeking recognition, a tramp thought which comes along, and a dozen other experiences not strong enough to occupy the center of the field. But instead of the study table and the problem, give us a bright fireside, an easy chair, and nothing to do. If we are aged, memories, images from out the past, will probably come thronging in and occupy the field to such extent that the fire burns low and the room grows cold, but still the forms from the past hold sway. If we are young, Visions of the future may crowd everything else to the margin of the field, while the castles in Spain occupy the center. Our memories may also be accompanied by emotions. Sorrow, love, anger, hate, envy, joy, 
And indeed, these emotions may so completely occupy the field that the images themselves are for the time driven to the margin and the mind is occupied with its sorrow, its love, or its joy. Once more, instead of the problem or the memories or the castles in Spain, give us the necessity of making some decision, great or small, where contending motives are pulling us now in this direction, now in that so that the question finally has to be settled by a supreme effort summed up in the words, I will. This is the struggle of the will which each one knows for himself. For who has not had a raging battle of motives occupy the center of the field while all else, even the sense of time, place, and existence, gave way in the face of this conflict? This struggle continues until the decision is made when suddenly all the stress and strain drop out and other objects may again have place in consciousness. The three fundamental phases of consciousness. Thus we see that if we could cut the stream of consciousness across as we might cut a stream of water from bank to bank with a huge knife and then look at the cutoff section we should find very different constituents in the stream at different times. We should at one time find the mind manifesting itself in perceiving, remembering, imagining, discriminating, comparing, judging, reasoning, or the acts by which we gain our knowledge. At another, in fearing, loving, hating, sorrowing, enjoying or the acts of feeling, at still another in choosing, or the act of the will. These processes would make up the stream, or in other words, these are the acts which the mind performs in doing its work. We should never find a time when the stream consists of but one of the processes, or when all these modes of mental activity are not represented. They will be found in varying proportions, now more of knowing, now of feeling, and now of willing, but some of each is always present in our consciousness. The nature of these different elements in our mental stream, their relation to each other, and the manner in which they all work together in amazing perplexity, yet in perfect harmony to produce the wonderful mind, will constitute the subject matter we shall consider together in the pages which follow. Where Consciousness Resides I, the conscious self, dwell somewhere in this body. But where? When my fingertips touch the object I wish to examine, I seem to be in them. When the brain grows weary from overstudy, I seem to be in it. When the heart throbs, the breath comes quick and the muscles grow tense from noble resolve or strong emotion. I seem to be in them all. When filled with the buoyant life of vigorous youth, every fiber and nerve is a tingle with health and enthusiasm. I live in every part of my marvelous body. 
Small wonder that the ancients located the soul at one time in the heart, at another in the pineal gland of the brain, and at another made it coextensive with the body. Consciousness works through the nervous system. Later science has taught that the mind resides in and works through the nervous system, which has its central office in the brain. And the reason why I seem to be in every part of my body is because the nervous system extends to every part, carrying messages of sight or sound or touch to the brain, and bearing in return orders for movements, which set the feet a-dancing or the fingers a-tingling. But more of this later. This partnership between mind and body is very close. Just how it happens that spirit may inhabit matter, we may not know, but certain it is that they interact on each other. What will hinder the growth of one will handicap the other, and what favors the development of either will help both. The methods of their cooperation and the laws that govern their relationship will develop as our study goes on. Problems in Observation and Introspection One should always keep in mind that psychology is essentially a laboratory science and not a textbook subject. The laboratory material is to be found in ourselves and in those about us. While the text should be thoroughly mastered, its statements should always be verified by reference to one's own experience and observation of others. Especially should prospective teachers constantly correlate the lessons of the book with the observation of children at work in the school. The problems suggested for observation and introspection will, if mastered, do much to render practical and helpful the truths of psychology. 1. Think of your home as you left it. Can you see vividly just how it looked? The color of the paint on the outside with the familiar form of the roof and all? Can you recall the perfume in some old drawer? The taste of a favorite dish? The sound of a familiar voice in farewell? 2. What illustrations have you observed where the mental content of the moment seemed chiefly thinking, knowledge process, chiefly emotion, feeling process, chiefly choosing or self-compulsion, willing process. 3. When you say that you remember a circumstance that occurred yesterday, how do you remember it? That is, do you see in your mind things just as they were and hear again sounds which occurred? or feel again movements which you performed? Do you experience once more the emotions you then felt? Four, what forms of expression most commonly reveal thought? What reveal emotions, i.e., can you tell what a child is thinking about by the expression on his face? Can you tell whether he's angry, frightened, sorry by his face? Is speech as necessary in expressing feeling as in expressing thought? 5. Try occasionally during the next 24 hours to turn quickly about mentally 
and see whether you can observe your thinking, feeling, or willing in the very act of taking place. Six, what becomes of our mind or consciousness while we are asleep? How are we able to wake up at a certain hour previously determined? Can a person have absolutely nothing in his mind? Seven, have you noticed any children especially adept in expression? Have you noticed any very backward? If so, in what form of expression in each case? Eight, have you observed any instances of expression which you were at a loss to interpret? Remember that expression includes every form of physical action, voice, speech, face, form, hand, etc. End of the Mind and Its Education, Chapter 1 by George Herbert Betts